Almighty and everlasting God, we come before you now as we open up your word and we ask for the guidance and power of your Holy Spirit, who teaches us all things. And we ask that you would grant us understanding into this passage of First Peter, and that by your Spirit's power, we would then be enabled to put these things into action in our daily lives. And we ask this in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. It's easy for us, uh, particularly in our day, with access to the internet, where we have literally encyclopedic knowledge just at a touch of a, a touch of a smartphone, to marvel at the great works of mankind, humankind, if you prefer. Just here in Pittsburgh, there's a great robotics industry at the collegiate level. You can marvel at robots. They didn't have them 100 years ago. Certainly nothing like we have now. They can build cars, maybe even perform minor surgeries. Who knows what they'll be able to do in the future. Maybe none of us will have jobs. Or, if you prefer, architecture. You can look at the, even go back 2,000, 3,000 years and see the marvels of ancient Rome or ancient Greece and marvel at, at how, how humans could figure out to do that way back when, when they didn't have power cranes. Or the pyramids of Egypt. How did they do that? Some people think UFOs came down and helped them. Spacemen helped them build them. I'll, I'll leave those uh, fanciful flights of idiocy to other people. We don't I believe that the slaves of Israel helped build those pyramids, not any spacemen. We can look around and see things just here in the sanctuary. Stuff's handmade. It's amazing. Visitors come in, I show them, I say, oh, that's handmade. I'll show you the picture of the man who made that pulpit. And people are, wow. It didn't take him five minutes. It didn't take him five minutes. Or even something as simple as a well-crafted strawberry pie. Those of us who cannot bake, those of us whose idea of baking is putting a strawberry Pop-Tart in the toaster, marvel when we see a strawberry pie and say, that's a work of art, literally. That looks good, tastes good, and I'm glad someone else made it. It's easy for us to marvel at those things, but I think it's altogether too easy as well for us to forget, to marvel at the simplicity and yet the majesty of God's plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation is great and majestic and it encompasses all of the centuries. God's plan of salvation started just as he was kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, that great promise in Genesis 3.15. That's when the plan of salvation started. And the plan of salvation will be ended when Christ returns to collect, literally, his people from this earth. And the resurrection of the dead occurs. And the final judgment, then salvation will be done. And every soul will be in its exact predetermined place. And all people will have received the due works of their hands. But until then, we should marvel at the great scope of God's salvation. At the mighty power that he has. And that's what Peter is trying to get across to us here in this passage that God's plan of salvation is gigantic. It's massive. It encompasses the centuries. And it includes, obviously, those of us in the New Covenant. But we're preceded by those of us who were under the Old Covenant. And it's important for us to really grasp and to understand how mighty God's plan of salvation is. Because our world is filled with other plans. 
Our world wants nothing to do with the plan of God's salvation. Our world has plans of wrecking the finance industry. Does anybody really understand how high finance works? I'm sure some people do, but if you watch the television shows, obviously the experts disagree. Because some economists think that we should have this planned economy or everything is planned out. And others just say, let the market take its course. When you have experts disagreeing, that's disconcerting to those of us who aren't experts. They seem to have plans for us. Our politicians seem to have different plans than the common man. And that's a fairly common thing throughout history. The leaders of the great empires usually aren't very concerned with what's happening down on the lower rungs of society, as long as the lower rungs of society keep their mouths shut and pay their taxes. So when these other plans start to crowd us, and when these other plans of these other persons and these other powers that be seem to weigh us down, it's important for us to understand God's plan of salvation, to understand it first in our minds so that it will then penetrate our hearts. Because if we understand that plan, then those other plans will seem puny in comparison. I mean, it really doesn't matter in the big scheme of things what the bankers do. It will hurt us in the temporary, possibly. But at the end of the day, when Christ returns, when Christ returns with his angels, he's not going to be asking what anybody's pocketbook looks like. He's not going to ask how many many greenbacks you have in the bank or how many gold gold bricks you have. He's not going to ask that. He'll ask what we've done with the resources he's given us, but he's not going to ask us about the increase. A millionaire will have no better say in the day of judgment than a complete pauper. All that will matter is our faith in Christ. If they're actually part of that plan of salvation, if they paid heed to the message of salvation, if they listened to the preaching of the gospel, that's all that will matter. So if we want some relief from the machinations and plans of this uh, seemingly crazy world, we do well to pay attention to what Peter is saying. And it's important for us to realize again that the first thing we need to understand is found in verse 1, that we are pilgrims in this world. I can't emphasize that enough. The more I read Peter on a daily basis, I realize this is really what he's trying to get at, that we are pilgrims in this earth. This earth is not our home. And it's so easy to forget that. I could preach on that for years, and we would still need to hear it, that this earth is not our home. How do we know it's not our home? Because Christ is going to return and take us home. He's reserved a place for us. What did Christ tell his disciples immediately before his passion? When they were very worried about the plans of the world. As I said, Peter was relatively clueless a lot of times. But on that last night, Jesus started to speak to them very plainly and made it very clear. And they started to realize he's, they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. He's going to be taken away from us. Could you imagine the terror and the fright in Peter's heart at that point? Especially when he realized that, and he keeps telling me about me betraying him three times. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it this time. I'm not going to give in. Well, we know that he did. What might have Simon the Zealot been thinking? He was a a political revolutionary. He was a member of the Zealot party wanted to overthrow Rome by physical violence. We have quite a few people like that in our day and age. And we have no indication that Jesus gave him any green light to do anything whatsoever like that. 
What would have been going through his mind when he realized they're going to take him and kill him? The Romans are going to be involved. What would have been going through his heart? Fear, anger, terror, disappointment. Maybe they had a glimpse of understanding, but that, that if they couldn't grasp the fact that he was going to die, the idea of him rising from the grave in three days, that was completely foreign to them because we know that because we remember that they thought that the words of the women were nonsense when they were, heard the report that he's risen. They thought that they had hallucinated. They were ridiculously dumb. And Peter's pointing out the only thing that's going to get us through is to realize that something better is coming. And that's certainly not a call for a flight from this world or to disregard our responsibilities in this world or not to live life to the fullest in the present. But it's to put it all in perspective, to realize something better is coming. It's reserved in heaven and it's not even like gold. Gold's a very precious commodity in our world, in case we forget. It's very precious. Wars have been fought over it. Millions of people have been slain for it. Families have been driven apart because of it and what it represents, buying power. And we want gold for one very reason, well, two. We want to buy stuff and we want to have it just in case stuff runs out. We use it as a god, as a security base. And what often happens is we realize when we have to use it that it's not nearly as powerful a god as we've, we've given it power that it doesn't, it doesn't save us. It buys us stuff, but it really can't buy us health. If you have terminal cancer, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't. If you're on your deathbed, it doesn't matter if you've got a zillion dollars in the bank, you're still on your deathbed. If you've just lost a child or a loved one, it doesn't matter if you have a billion dollars in the bank, you're still sad and lonely because that person's gone. Money doesn't help people when they're sad. Buying stuff really make you feel good when, you're, when, when life has really hurt you. I'm not talking about when you've had a bad day and you go out and splurge on ice cream and maybe buy a new shirt or something. I'm talking about when life really levels you and runs you over. Does, does, does going to the mall and buying something, does that, is that the first thing that comes to your mind? Oh, mom's dead or dad's dead. Then we go run to the mall and buy something? No, that's not the first thing that comes to your mind. The first thing you want to do is sit or call people that you are close to. You don't want to go out and buy presents. And you certainly don't want to go out and buy a new car for yourself. That's because we know that all things are passing. And as I pointed out last week, Peter says, the end of this is the salvation of our souls. I can't press upon you enough that that is what we need to be attending to. You have one day less on this earth. What is the state of your soul? Are you in the new covenant? Are you a believer in Christ? Just because you come to church does not make you a believer in Christ. It's the place where you hear the message, but you can stand in a garage all day and it will not make you a car. You can dress up in, in a football uniform and it will not make you a member of the Steelers. It will not. The sanctuary of a church. This is the meeting place. This isn't the church. We call it the church. We're the church. This is the meeting place of the church. This is the sanctuary where the church meets. So I ask you, are you in covenant with God? 
Has Christ saved your soul? Has he? Have you placed all of your trust in him? Is he your only hope in this life or the next? Or are you placing your hope in someone or something else? My prayer is that all of us on that great and final day will be able to say, Jesus and Jesus alone. It's only on him. The rock of ages. The amazing grace that he's given me. That's all I'm basing my eternal hope on. Is it? I'm asking you flat out. If it's not, then beg God for forgiveness in your heart of hearts. You don't need to come down here and dance. You don't have to do anything like that. And if he's already saved you, are you growing in that faith? Do you listen to him? Do you pay attention to him? Do you go to him? Not just when things are bad, but when things are good. Do you go to him just during ordinary days when things aren't really bad or really good? They're just ordinary Because most of our days are ordinary. Big, great things don't happen every day. Praise be to God, bad, terrible things for us don't happen every day. Most of our days are fairly routine. Fairly routine. So if most of our days are fairly routine and ordinary, it makes sense that we speak to God during the majority of that time, because that's how the majority of our time is spent. So I'm asking you, are you walking closely with him? Are you growing more like him every day? Is the genuineness of your faith? These people were being tested. We're tested every day, not quite like this. We're tested through temptations. We're tested by stressful people at work. We're tested by stressful people in our own families. We're tested by our own weaknesses. Okay? Is your faith being proved more and more genuine because you're battling these foes with the power of God? Here's the way you can tell. If you're battling it in your own strength, you'll be extremely tired of the battle. You'll be tired because your strength is limited and it will run out. And you will be increasingly depressed because you will find that victories are fewer than defeats because of our own power. If you're fighting something in the power of God, you will feel stronger because his power is unlimited. You might still have quite a few defeats in your resume, but you're still fighting and you still feel the wind of God in your sails, so to speak. That's part and parcel of understanding his plan of salvation. His plan of salvation encompasses us becoming more like Christ. Think about the pattern of Christ's life. How did he become the perfect sacrifice for your sins? He became the perfect sacrifice for your sins by becoming a man and then living a perfect life under God's law and then dying on that cross and not giving into the temptation to come down, not giving into the temptation to come up. He became that way in his humanity. And if we are Christians, which literally means little Christs, and if we want to pattern our life after his, then we need to be continually putting down the temptations that come our way and to continually move onward and upward in his power, knowing that he is our great high priest. You see, we have a distinct advantage over the old covenant believer. Christ has come. He's died. He's risen. He's in session right now, waiting to hear your prayers. 
Many of our lives are dry and dull and dreary and filled with weakness simply because we do not go to God. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he says, when you ask, you ask with selfish motives, that you can spend it on your selfish lusts. Examine your heart. Are you going to God for the right reasons? Are you going to God at all? Are you going to God at all? Think of how silly it is not to go to him. Think about it. There's a God who's got this great plan of salvation. It's such a great plan that it includes you. And the prophets, in verse 10, Peter points out that the prophets inquired and searched carefully. What did they search carefully? The history of ancient Israel? No. The grace that would come to you. That's startling. You picture Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel studying, searching, and has revealed to them that what they were prophesying had nothing to do with themselves. They might have sought comfort in the prophetic message that they had been given. But when they searched and searched, they realized, I'm, I'm, God's given me something that's, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with my brothers and sisters who will be here long after I'm gone. I don't know what kind of comfort they received from that, but we received great comfort realizing that God prophesied of the grace that was to come to us. And the prophets who did the prophetic ministry, they reveled in it. And they searched, and they searched diligently, and they studied, and it was revealed to them that they were talking about us. So when you read your Old Testament, those promises are for you. They're for us. We are the new covenant people. We are the Israel of God. We are his chosen and elect. That should not be a cause for pride. It should be a cause for great humility. Because when we look in the mirror, we realize that we are in a place that we simply do not deserve. Do not deserve to be in the new covenant. How do we know that? Because we confess our sins. But the beauty of the new covenant, the beauty of the new covenant, you can find it in Hebrews 8, and you read down in your footnotes, where you can find it in Jeremiah, I'm not going to tell you. Go home and find where it's at in Jeremiah. The beauty of the new covenant is that he will forgive our sins and remember them no more. And that he will write his law on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. You can throw out stone. You can burn paper. But if something's emblazoned in your heart, it doesn't matter what anybody does to you because it's inside. I heard this strange thing that the reason why so many Russians or Soviets were so good at chess for so long is because the party, the Communist Party, could not get inside the chess master's head. It was the only place in the Soviet Union where it was completely abstract, where the party couldn't get in. All they cared about was you winning. All that mattered was kill the other guys, can't have better strategy. If it's written in your heart and written in your mind, it doesn't matter what the government does to you because they can't take that away from you. You hear all this stuff. They took God out of school. They didn't take God out of school. God is everywhere. They took away students' and teachers' right to publicly pray in school. But you know what? If your kids are in public school, they can pray anytime they want. You know why? Because they don't have to say it out loud. Surprise, surprise, surprise. They thought they were taking religion out of school, and they didn't. You can't remove God. It's impossible. Do I think that children should be able to pray in school? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
publicly? Absolutely. But even if they can't, it doesn't matter. Surprise, surprise, surprise. I'm praying right now, even when you don't even know it, you can tell the people. I'm sure there are many Christian teachers in public schools who pray every day. Pray every day for the grace that they need to deal with, you know, 31st graders. I can't imagine what that would be like. They have to be praying. Well, they're not going to make it to lunch. It's just not going to happen. They didn't take God out of school. God's plan of salvation is so much bigger than what Washington, D.C. could ever dream of. That's ridiculous. The prophets prophesied about what was going to come to us. And he continues searching in what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This clearly shows us that the spirit is a person. Impersonal forces do not testify. Electricity is an impersonal force. It doesn't testify. It creates light. It creates fire. If you shut the light switch off, it's dead. If the transformer gets hit, the lights go out. They cannot testify, cannot pray. The Holy Spirit is a person. And His ministry is to reflect the glory of Christ and to remind us, to inscribe on our hearts. That's how the law of God gets on our hearts because the Holy Spirit writes it there and He emblazons it in our mind. So even if they take away your Bible, and maybe they will someday, what if you have the book of Romans memorized? They can't take that away from you. If you have John 3.16 memorized, and that's the only verse you have memorized, and you hold on to that for dear life, they can't take that away to you. And even if you don't have any of them memorized, the Holy Spirit has emblazoned it in your heart. You just know that it's true. They just know. Because the Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher of all time. He takes what is Christ's and brings it to us and bids us to move forward and to reflect the glory of Christ in our daily lives. That's part of the plan of salvation. Very often we think of the Trinity and we wonder, well, why does it have to be three in one? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, they each have a different job, for lack of a better term. The Spirit doesn't get credit for dying. The Father never dies. Right? When we partake of communion, who makes that real to us? Me? The words of institution that are written in this book of church order? Absolutely not. That book of church order will do nothing for you except help you run a better meeting and possibly cure your insomnia. It will not help you observe the Lord's Supper more properly. It's the Holy Spirit who's working in you that makes you realize, man, he really died. He died. He suffered. He bled. And he's risen, hallelujah. If you understand that, it's the Holy Spirit who taught you. And some of you grew up in the church. And you might have, it might have dawned on you when you were three or four. You can't even remember a time when you didn't believe. And that's the goal of covenant children, that they never have a moment when they didn't believe. They can't recollect, I don't know when I got saved. I always believed. That's the goal. I always believed. I didn't have any crisis experience when I was 21. They need one. That's the plan of God's salvation. That's how great it is. We don't read anything about ancient Israelites having revival services and having their adult children who were circumcised, the boys circumcised, that they get saved. What are they going to do? Circumcise them again? It's crazy. It works the same way in the New Covenant. You understand, you children who grew up in Christian homes, 
are different than people who grow up outside of Christian homes. If you grow up outside of a Christian home, you hear the message from outside and it hits you like a wall of concrete. When you grow up in a Christian home, it's, it's like little pebbles, just slowly. And after a while, it's like, well, I've just always believed this. That's the goal. We don't need a crisis experience. It's ridiculous. They're ministering to us. But more importantly, but to us, they were ministering the things which now, this is the message of the gospel, that have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you again by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. In terms of categories, the prophetic ministry of the Old Covenant and the preaching ministry of the New Covenant are one and the same. Now, I'm not saying that I'm Isaiah. I'm certainly not saying I'm Jeremiah. I wouldn't want his faith. I'm not Elijah. I'm not Daniel. But the ministry is the same. They preach, and the message is always the same. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe what Yahweh has said. Repent and believe that he's got a plan of salvation and it's greater than you could ever imagine. So I call upon you to repent of your unbelief. And I call upon you to believe or to continue to believe that God has this great plan of salvation that was foretold thousands of years ago and you are part of it. We're here gathered now. It's not a bunch of individuals worshiping. That's why we use corporate worship. It's why we stand together. It's why we sing together. Because we're one body. We're one people. We're not all singing different songs. Imagine how crazy that would sound. Somebody decided to sing Amazing Grace and then over here they decided to sing number 64, O Creatures of Our God and King. Totally different keys. It would sound weird. No, we sing the same songs. Why? Because we're one body. And we're united with those who have gone before us you are part of a great and marvelous plan of salvation. God has grabbed a hold of you. He's never going to let you go. Even if you want him to, he's not going to. So just cooperate with him. It's much, much more pleasant. We serve a great and wonderful God. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord, we ask that this plan of salvation that you have graciously allowed us to be part of, that it would be more vivid to our minds and our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.